Hello, and welcome to yet another session of the Silm Film Project. I am your co-host, Dave Kale, and I am joined, as always, by the Tolkien professor, Corey Olson and Trish Lambert. You notice the change of vocabulary. We realize that referring to uh, our uh, episodes of the podcast as episodes is confusing since we're talking about episodes of the TV show and the number of the podcast episodes don't line up with the episode the episode numbers of the TV shows we're discussing on those episodes, and it's just a giant confusing mishmash. But that's what you've come to expect here on the Silmarillion <laughs> Film Project. <laughs> <laughs> regardless of the fact that they've come to expect it, we still renamed these That's sessions. Right. Yeah, so so we're, we're trying to clarify we're things them. by calling these sessions, and the so by episode we will be referring to the episode of the t- of the show, uh, and these will be our sessions of the podcast. We're, we're doing our we're doing our best to minimize. We're we're trying to confine the confusion not to the structural setup of the act- of the podcast and just to the decisions we make about how about uh, the uh, TV show. We're we're trying to just we're focusing on baffling you by by mostly that's right you know, with with what we're doing with the story where you're like what the heck is wrong with these people <laughs> no 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 all of our decisions are great that's right yeah as your as your de facto studio heads <laughs> that's right we have that's uh, right yes we're we're uh, highly uh, very well informed and carefully thought out decisions so um, today we want to begin by reviewing some of the stuff that we. Um, have uh, heard from you guys and, and talked about last time. One thing that uh, we wanted to mention is the uh, the, the the YouTube video about uh, about the Anuindale. We posted a link to it uh, here in our chat session, and um, I think you know for those of you who have uh, have seen this, I think this is really fascinating. There's one thing though that I would say. Um, and that is, like, you know, there are some people who have been saying, like, you know, are we going to do the Anu Lindale? You know, should we do the Anu Lindale? Something like this. There's a fundamental difference between what this video is attempting to do and what we are attempting to do. Um, and that is, this just, it, it uses the Martin Shaw narration and just puts, you know, some music in the background and video depiction. Now, I, I know that that sounds slighting, like, it, it merely does this. But that's a fundamentally different kind of thing than what we're doing. Um, it's not actually trying to adapt the narrative. Like, there's no adaptation of the text, for instance. It just is the narration of the text. I mean, there's some adaptation in the sense that some bits are cut, and so it's been put together in different ways. That's, again, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to say that there isn't a lot of work involved in that. I'm just saying that it's very different from what we're trying to do. Um, from the challenge that we've set ourselves of having these as sort of continual narratives, to have this story unfolding and these characters developing, um, not merely as images on the screen to be associated with the words of the text, um, but to be, uh, you know, adapting into a real film, film narrative. Is, so... So basically, I guess, you know, I'm just trying to explain why my primary reaction to this video was, I think this is really cool. I think many of the visuals are really interesting, but it's, um, but it, I, I didn't feel that it helped me very much, I guess, in thinking about what we would do because what we're doing is really different, as I said. So anyway, that, I, I, several people had, had, had asked about it. Um, and it's similar the, the, uh, the Evan Palmer thing as well. You know, there, there are a number of Ina Lindale things out there that people have been asking, uh, about and what do we think about that? I, I like the Evan Palmer thing. It's very interesting. But again, it's not 
doing the same kind of thing that we're doing. It's not trying to incorporate this into a, into a sort of a full visual narrative. It's, 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 it's one thing to accompany the text of the book with visuals. It's another thing to actually do a, a story adaptation. Do you see what I mean? Does, 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 does that distinction I'm trying to draw make any sense, guys? Do you, do you see what I'm talking about? I completely agree. Excellent. <laughs> For the record. For the record. Yeah, so uh, I, I know that always I know that always disappoints people when we have an <laughs> right exactly. Uh, Everyone is hoping right. for violent disagreement from Dave, but but anyway, so like I said, and I, it's hard but because I, 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 I know there's a terrible chance that this is just going to come out snooty being like, well, what they're doing is very simple. No, no, it, we're doing, I, I don't think it's snooty. It's just acknowledging that this that there's a difference between there's a difference between sort of creating a visual depiction of the Anilindale as described. You know, a direct visual depiction of the Ina as described in the book versus creating a, um, you know, sort of a narrative adaptation for something like a TV show. It's just not this. I mean, this is, this is the, you know, like, like, it's a, it's an interesting experience, but it's not, it's not like a film adaptation. Right. It's, I it's, think that's a, maybe that's, it's, I'm stumbling all over myself. Maybe this is just like splitting hairs or something. Um, it's a subtle distinction, but it nonetheless is a real distinction. Right. I mean, I, when, throughout talking about the Peter Jackson films, one of the things that I kept saying was, when you're, di- when you, when you're adapting something to a visual medium, it's not just a matter of, you know, making the book, putting the book on the screen. Like, you can't just sort of, it's not possible to have a visual adaptation that's just the book on screen. Um, well, I guess it kind of is, in in as much as this uh, this uh, I know Wendell, a, uh YouTube video um, is essentially that. You know, we're we're just going to take the narrative of the book, you know, and associate visual images with what the sentences say. And it it basically enables, you know, it sort of invites us to interact with the book in a different way. And there's obviously, you know, choices that are being made, really interesting choices, really important choices about how you depict these things visually. Again, not trying to 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 understate any of the work that's being done there. Um, but it's not the but it's not the same thing as the as as actually adapting the story and trying to tell a story. It you couldn't do a TV show that way, you know. You just it you really just couldn't. It yeah, wouldn't yeah. work. Yeah. For um, for example, we're certainly not going to we're not going to um, have uh, just you know like a a a, 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 a um, narrator voice, Martin Shaw mispronouncing or otherwise <laughs> just reading the text right. over visuals, but rather we want to have we want to have something that's that's a that's a more that's more of an adaptation where you actually have characters and actors and and drama and a storyline and dialogue and things like that. Uh and that's naturally going to lead to some different decisions, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um yeah, I I I you know, I actually didn't look at it from the point of view of like the full depiction of it being applicable to us. Um, I did like some elements of it. You know, I, I don't know that it's what we would do, but for example, the depiction of the Ainur is like ribbons of light versus you know anything else. That was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the depiction. This was all done without any kind of 
narration at all, it was pretty cool. I mean, could somebody, you know, could somebody who had never read the Aino Linda like get it? And I think, yeah, I probably they'd probably wonder what the person was at the end, but <laughs> right. um, but all you know, Melkor coming to Earth. I mean, some of those features were pretty cool. Not that I think we should we would adopt those, but I think they've dealt with some stuff. And that actually brings me to my main point, which is watching this film, watching this video after doing what we've been doing made me really appreciate how much thought and planning had to go into this thing yeah. to figure out how they were going to do it. You know, so that from that standpoint, I really appreciate it. And I think they have dealt with a very difficult, you know, story to depict pretty well, you know, with absolutely no words spoken at all. So that was pretty cool. But I agree. I mean, I don't necessarily know that it has, you know, much bearing or influence on how we would do it. Right. Right. But there were some interesting pieces in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I agree. Um, one other question that we got uh, since the last episode um, was a, a really good general question, um, and that was how how are we going to handle the passage of time? Uh, because of course, season one of our show is going to cover a huge swath of time, um, you know, like thousands of years. How do we convey um, that we are, you know, that all of this time is passing? Um, and my own answer to this is that I, I rather think that this is one of the great benefits, not only of having a frame story in general, but having the kind of frame story that we're having. That is, having a frame story which is, you know, the fundamental frame story of season one is Elrond teaching Estelle stuff, right? That's the, that's the, the sort of the dominant theme. There's other stuff going on, right? We've got the Gilrine element and, 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 uh, you know, meeting with, uh, uh, you know, his, his, his encounter with the, with, uh, you know, perhaps at first from a distance with the dwarves and then meeting Bilbo at the end. It's a, and so there are, there, are other, there are other elements that are going to be happening. Maybe we do go and do the flashback to the death of Arathorn and, and stuff, but, but the primary centerpiece, you know, the the the, the central feature of that um, of, the, of that frame is Elrond teaching Estelle stuff. That's where the stories come from. That's that's the that's the dominant thing, and therefore it's really pretty easy because Elrond is going to be telling um, Estelle a series of stories, and of course, you know lots of time will pass between the episodes that he tells him, you know, between the different stories that he tells him. And I kind of think that actually, I'm thinking that uh, maybe episode three or episode four might be a really good point when we can actually have Esto ask this question. You know, he can, you know, so episode three, according to our planning, was when Melkor comes to Almerin and we, we have, you know, the interactions with him. Maybe we have Esto ask a simple question, the kind of question, you know, that a 10 year old would ask. So, so how long had they been living in Almarin before Melkor came? Um, and how long had they, had it been since they first came, you know, to the earth? And then we, so we can have Elrond saying like, well, you know, uh, time wasn't really measured back then in the same way that, you know, that elves and men, uh, that, that, that then elves are certainly men measure time. Um, and, you know, and so he can kind of talk about how, you know, lots of time has passed and he can even allude back to it in the frame before other stories to say that, you know, and again, you know, much time, much time had passed. So, I mean, I think that we can do that in, in conversation in the frame without having to do any, you know, cheesy, you know, 15,000 years later at the bottom of the screen or, or something uh, like what that. The fast, the fast, what is that? Capture oh, yeah, the, photography. 
Oh yeah, the yeah, right time lapse photography, right? Yeah, time yeah. lapse, yeah, time lapse. Yeah, just sort of show the passage of time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we um, we yeah, we could um, we could do things like that, but I don't think we need to again because of the no. frame. You know, that's it's part of the fundamental premise is is the idea, and I think this is something that's going to be my my general thought is season one is likely to be more frame heavy than most of our seasons because, and in large part because of this, um, because we're not, we don't need even, we don't really need to be spending as much continuous time having our viewers totally immersed in the, in the, in the age, in the first age story. Um, it's more, it's a little bit more episodic. It's, you know, again, this, this happened a long time passes and, and then this other, you know, so we'll have the story developing, but again, it's not like, for instance, the story of Baron and Luthien or the story of Turin Turinbar, um, which is something that's sort of happening in real time, you know, in real human mm-hmm. time scale. Um, so I think it's okay for us to acknowledge that we are doing, you know, we're saying here is, here is, you know, what was up with the gods during the first, you know, age before time was kept track of, you know, it, it's, it's, it's okay for us to be pointing to that through the frame, I think. And then we, it, it, it would be kind of a cool progression, actually, as the children of Iluvatar come and, and the story goes on for that to become more and more immersive. We're going to have the same issue in season two when the elves are in Valinor. There's going to be a lot of time yeah. that time passes and nothing in particular happens. And it's okay, I think, for us to acknowledge that. But the frame gives us an easy way, I think, to acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then we'll have Sam tell the story. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, I think I think we I think we naturally have to rely on the the frame more in the first season. Um, it just if nothing else, because I mean, what what um, what I think what really drives. Um, Interest in TV shows, what what gets people what gets people watching is is ultimately character drama. Like you can have gimmicks, you can have great story, you can have epic battles, great visuals, costumes, etc., etc., etc. But what 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 interests people sort of week in week out is character drama, and I think I think the character drama of um of stuff with the Valar is going to be slow to start because the the personal stakes that people have in in the events um won't be all that clear but if but um but by leveraging the frame story we can we can give much more personal stakes yes yes um exactly if we we the fr- through the frame um, you know, through, uh, through the character of Estelle, through Gilrine and Elrond and, and the kinds of, you know, we already have both hopefully characters that we can connect people with and that, the, and that some people are going to be invested in right away. I mean, when we reveal in episode one that this is the young Aragorn, um, which of course Tolkien fans will know anyway, but, um, but anyway, so we, we already have a level, can it, can achieve a level of investment there, which you're right. The, I mean, Especially since, remember, we're talking about not even fully humanoid characters. You know, these are characters which we're going to be representing through much of season one as like, you know, this, with these like elemental forms. They're not going to look like normal people. Um, it's, you know, it's going to be really hard for people to be totally connected to the Valar. I, again, my goal of season one is I want, I would want people to be, to, to, to get to know the Valar. 
and to begin by the end of the season to really become attached to many of them. But as you say, Dave, we're not going to be able to expect people to jump in and establish those connections yeah. right away. Um, yes. So the frame. And, oh, Mandos. Uh, wow. right. I'm really intrigued. What's going to happen with him next? <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, he's 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 going to be a real. Actually, you know, it would be hilarious. I think uh, to cast Mandos as somebody just like devastatingly attractive. You know, just like have everybody drooling over Mando, but he like never says anything and never does. And, and, and everybody was begging for Mandos to be more involved in the story, but he just. You know, is aloof and says nothing. I think it'd be really funny. But anyhow, um, let's. Uh, I think um, so. Yeah, I, I, like we say, I think frame heavy is good. The other, the other advantage, and this is where I just love the sort of pedagogical frame. Right, I love the fact that it's it's. I, I think that it's there's so many uses that we can put um, the Estelle um, plot because again. People are gonna be confused. I mean, talking, trying to talk about the beginning of the world and understanding, like, what are the Valar really, and 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 what's going on with them. Um, we have a really easy mechanism. Like, we have a we have a child to ask these questions and get them answered. You know, so without having to be like, and now for some laborious voiceover exposition to explain how stuff works. Um, it can be part of the story, you know. I mean, it can be part of uh, you know Estelle and, and es- establishing Estelle and Elrond's relationship, essentially. Um, and that's great. That's important. And 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 Estelle and Gilrine's relationship. And um, but yet throughout that, also um, Estelle is also asking all the questions that the common viewer would want answered in order to understand what the heck is going on with the Valar and the earlier plot. Um, so, so yeah, I think it's, this is why I, I really, I really love this idea. And I think that that frame is going to give us a lot of, uh, a lot of. You know, I may have said this last time, but I'm really thrilled with the fact that we're, we're going to have Gil Ryan play such a, uh, prominent role in the frame. And also mm-hmm. thrilled with the fact that she's basically going to channel Andreth because, you know, we're probably not going to have an Athrobeth type. Well, I guess maybe you said you wanted to, but well, anyway, I mean, I do, do. I definitely want. I definitely want to have Andreth's character. <laughs> I, I definitely want to tell Andreth's story, especially, of course, right. the Andreth love story. Oh, especially. I mean, that's sure. a, I mean, yeah, that's a, that's you know, Andreth and I know is, 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 is literally unique. It's unique. Uh, it's in, the only one that's yeah. Yeah, it's the only human yeah. female male elf romance in all of Tolkien. So we totally go there, but. But the Athrobeth itself, um, I talk about your stories, which are awesome to read, but would not make good theater. Like, yeah, let's. Oh my God, we'd lose, we'd lose the audience completely. <laughs> let's do like, let, let's do like a, a double episode, right? Like a to be continued episode of just Finrod and Andreth talking. I mean, it know? would make waiting for Godot look like an action. <laughs> 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 exactly. Exactly. So yeah, no, we, so yeah, we can't, I mean, as much as I love it, we can't do that. We can take the ideas from that we can have those come up we can have them come up both in the frame and within the stories um we can even we can give even give the andreth character some of her lines and 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 incorporate some of it but but yeah i i so i think it would be uh, it would be and and besides like the tension between elves and men um, I think is something that should come out and i like having it come out in this oh, kind yeah, of definitely. way you know that is not um yeah. not 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 just have like for instance it's so easy just to sort of stereotype uh, or not not stereotype but it's easy to handle the tension between elves and men as simply a like i am prejudiced against elves kind of 
thing. You know, where you're like, okay, so the elves and the humans don't really trust each other. It's far more interesting to have something like this where Gilrine knows Elrond has been living there now for, by this time she's been living there for eight years in Rivendell. She knows all of these people really well. Um, presumably doesn't just hate them and is not acting on some kind of mindless prejudice. Um, but nevertheless, like, but, but has these objections, you know, where we're seeing, like, even when they are close, even when they respect each other, even when they like each other and live together, elves and men don't see things the same way. And there's, and there's, there's, there's tension there. And I, so I think that's a far more interesting thing to do than the, um, you know, I, I mean, again, and I'm not, I'm not yeah, saying that they did this badly, but you know, like the way that uh, I'm not even thinking of the Hobbit films. I'm thinking of the Lord of the Rings films. You know, like the, the elf dwarf tension as they depicted it in the uh, uh, in the Lord of the Rings films, or even Boromir's, uh, you know, sort of also clearly being a bit standoffish when it comes to the elves and stuff. That's that's. Um, or, Never really explained. Yeah, I mean, it's and it's it's fine. Like, it's, I'm sure that that happens, and we can show that 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 kind of thing. But but there's more to it than that. There's more to it than just like this is about prejudice and um and you know being willing to accept others even though they're different from you. Like yes, and I know that's like you know one of Hollywood's favorite themes. But that's there's more to it. Than well, that. And, you know, and in this case, you know, it's a mother like not wanting to lose her child to a, yes. sort of an alien force, if you will. You right. Know? Exactly. Um, so it makes it even that much more strong and, and poignant, I suppose we could call it. Yes. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. Um, yeah. So cool. So this is why, so I'm, I'm kind of thinking, just kind of glancing ahead at, uh, at episode two, um, that we're going to be talking about today. I also think it's likely that we would end up having a, a comparatively frame heavy episode again. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, I think I, particularly so today because I, I'm, I'm – well, all right. I'll explain more of that later on. But anyway, I'm definitely thinking more more frame-heavy episode this first time too. But, okay, um, let's uh, – before we shift into talking about episode two, however, let's um, do some quick announcements because I'm always afraid that I'm going to totally forget to do them. Um, so quick announcements. Uh, first, just a reminder, we've been announcing this, but it is now fast approaching. We're slightly more than a week away uh, from Midmoot, from the Mid-Atlantic Speculative Fiction Symposium, which is happening at the University of Maryland next weekend. So a week from tomorrow uh, is Midmoot. If you have, if you are anywhere in the area, if you're in the anywhere in the general D.C. area, anywhere between... Uh, you know, uh, like New York and North Carolina, consider coming. It's going to be awesome. It's uh, it's it's practically free. It costs ten bucks to register. Um, uh, there's a really gr- a really great group of people coming. We've got about sixty people who are planning to be there right now. So this means there's a lot of really fun people. But it's also, I mean, you're not coming in a crowd of, you know, a thousand people. That you know, there will be lots of chance to 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 talk with people, to meet people, get a chance to. I mean, I would love to get a chance to meet many of you whom I haven't met yet, and uh, you get a chance to to hang out with and talk with Verlin Flieger, who is awesome. Get to hear about the Coolervo book that's coming out and has not yet been released in America. Um, you know, hear about her experience in working with uh, uh, with that book and with the Tolkien estate and and uh, and all that stuff. So it it, it should be uh, it should be really awesome. Plus, of course, um, you'll be able to hear 
you know, uh, presentations and engage in discussions with people about uh, different books and topics, not just Tolkien and fantasy, but science fiction stuff as well. So it's going to be it's going to be really great. The program is available on the website. Um, so definitely just want to make sure uh, everybody uh, is aware of that. Again, that's next week. You can find it by going to MythGuard.org and looking at the Events tab, and you will see uh, all of the information and the link to register there. Um, uh, secondly, again, a reminder, we just had our second session of the Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell class with the MythGuard Academy. We just had that on Wednesday night. Um, I'm having great fun going through Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. We're going to finish part one of the book next week, next Wednesday. So uh, this, of course, is a long book. And uh, if you uh, wait too long to get involved, you'll have a heck of a lot of reading to catch up with. So uh, so I urge you to, uh, uh, to, to, to join us sooner rather than later for that class. It's been, uh, it's been great fun. So, um, again, that will be happening next Wednesday. And of course, the biggest thing that's going on, we have lots and lots of stuff going on in the Mythgard Insignum world these days. And the biggest thing right now is our fundraising campaign, which we officially launched on Tuesday. It is time when we, uh, collect our pledges and donations to support our annual fund and keep Mythgard running and including the Silmarillion Film Project. Um, you know, we, one of the things that we do, you know, there are basically two things that, um, that Mythgard through the Signum University is really doing, and that is, uh, trying to, first of all, trying to build a program that people can come to take, you know, to get their master's degree to, to study, uh, fantasy and science fiction. Uh, you know, in ways that they've never been able to before and be able to connect with uh, scholars and teachers from around the world uh, to pursue in-depth studies. We have uh, many, you know, many people who have been just regular fans, you know, people who have been lifelong readers of Tolkien and have taken this opportunity through studying with us to sort of take the next step and actually, you know, become published uh, scholars, people who have been speaking at conferences and uh, and uh, and publishing stuff. And it's been awesome. Uh, just recently, I'm forgetting the title of it. Trish, I don't know if you remember the title of it, but the, there's a, a new Harry Potter book uh, coming out. It's a collection of, of, uh, of essays wow. on Harry Potter. Um, and uh, something like 60% of the essays in that book are by Mythgard students. Uh, uh, Amy Sturgis taught her Harry Potter class. Harry a, Potter for nerds. Like a, a year. Yeah. Harry Potter for nerds. That's it. Um, uh, Amy Sturgis taught her Harry Potter class a year and a half ago uh, at, at, uh, at Mythgard. And she, uh, and she has an article in there and five of her students who took that class, uh, you know, those, those are, those are the, the papers that are adapted from the papers they wrote for that, for that class, uh, all got accepted for this book. So like the half of the book is basically based on that, that one, uh, Signum class. It was, it's really, really cool. That's the kind of thing that, um, uh, you know, that we've, we've been seeing happen and, and that I really love seeing. But of course the other thing, um, the other thing that we um, have been really excited to do is to bring free programs, you know, to bring stuff that's, of course, we have to charge tuition for our courses. We, you know, have to pay our faculty and things. Um, but of course, we really want to be able to engage everybody who wants to talk about and, and, and learn about, you know, Tolkien, fantasy and science fiction. So we have a number of, you know, the Silmarillion Film Project here is one. The Mythgard Academy is another, which I was just mentioning our... Um, 
guest lecture series where we've been bringing in a, a series of scholars to do uh, open public lectures is another. The uh, the uh, the Lotro stuff that we've been doing, the the both the kinship that we have and the the Twitch stream, the weekly Twitch stream I've been doing on Lord of the Rings Online. You know, a number of, uh, of stuff in which we've been engaging with that big Tolkien adaptation project, uh, The Lord of the Rings Online, um, which has been, which has been, uh, been, been great fun. All of these things are ways in which, you know, we're trying to make, uh, you know, we're trying to make, you know, scholarship, academic and intellectual engagement with these works that you like available to everybody. But of course it's not, although we make them available for free, they're not free. And we really re- rely on people's donations to make this continue to happen. So our fundraising campaign is going on now. And our campaign stretches from this past uh, Tuesday from Hobbit Day all the way through Halloween. And we have a bunch of events coming, a bunch of special events coming up um, where we're going to be sort of spotlighting and celebrating the programs that we're doing and, and having some special things and doing special giveaways and, and, uh, and, uh, and, and having some, uh, some, some pledge drives for, um, for, to, to support particular initiatives. So we're really excited about this. We have meant, we announced last time, this is, I think, I'm just going to say the the film film event that we're doing in the campaign is the one I'm looking forward to more than of all of the events, all of which are awesome. And I'm involved in many of them and I'm looking forward to all of them. But the one I'm looking forward to more than any other is the film film event. Um, our interview and discussion with Jim Butcher, author of the Dresden Files uh, and the Codex Alera. And, uh, you know, as I've said before, Jim Butcher is one of my very favorite contemporary fantasists. Um, he's, uh, I don't do living authors very much. Uh, I, I strongly prefer dead authors. The dead or the you better like is dead? generally like my strategy. Dead, huh? <laughs> uh, wait, wh- sorry, what, 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 what was that? Do you like your authors dead? Absolutely dead. Yes, yes. The dead are the better. That's 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 how I like them. And uh, I mean, t- I still consider Tolkien like a, a super contemporary author. He's like a major exception for me. But um, uh, the, the he still is at least still comfortably dead. So, uh, but uh, anyway, Jim Butcher is very much living, and so we're going to interview him. Uh, but anyway, like I said, he's one of my favorite living authors, one of my favorite living fantasists, um, and uh, I, I I love his work, and I'm really looking forward to talking to him. And we're not just going to be sort of chatting about his books. We'll do some of that too, because uh, all three of us. Um, read and like his books but uh but of course we want to talk with him about Tolkien we want to talk about adaptation you know his thoughts he you know he he was interested to talk about the adaptation from book to film you know we'll talk about the uh, the sort of, sort of well okay I'm going to go on the record and call it disastrous adaptation of the Dresden Files uh to the 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 sci-fi show that they did um you know we'll talk some about the Peter Jackson adaptations and we'll get some of his opinions on uh how we should do film film stuff so that should be a really fun conversation and that's Trisha October 13th, right? Third, I was just looking it up, in fact. Yes, I believe it is just the 13th. Just check, yeah, and yeah. It's, and, it's, and it's correct on the site. Okay. So any date I give, if it's different, the site's the thing. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, for full information on our fundraising campaign, uh, you know, to make a donation or to find out more about the events that are going on, um, just go to MythGuard.org or SignumUniversity.org, and on every page, there's a there's a there's a, a button on the top right uh, to take you to our annual fund page that gives the whole description of the fundraiser and our goals and 
the 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 kind of privileges that our donors get and uh and links to donate and links to the events and links to our uh, our flash fiction contest which is the first time the Mythgard has ever sponsored a fiction contest uh we'll be publishing the winners and we'll have uh you know reading and 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 discussion about the winning um uh the winning entries uh during our webathon on Halloween um so anyway, it's going to be, that's been great fun too. I've been really enjoying, I've seen, you know, I've seen a, a bunch of the, uh, submissions, uh, in this first week. There'll be a different theme, uh, for the flash fiction, um, submissions, uh, during each week of the campaign. So I've been looking at some of the week one ones and they're really fun. So, um, uh, the, the voting for that is open, by the way. If you go to the, uh, the, the, the web, the webpage for the fiction contest, again, you can access that through the, uh, through the annual fund page. Um, but uh but anyway yeah so if you if you go there there's there's a link to review and vote on your favorites uh for the uh uh for for the fiction contest so so definitely t- take a look at that too so and yes october 13th is the day is the day yeah yeah october um, 13th 8 p.m. eastern time 8 p.m. eastern time right yeah very good very good and cool. uh, the um netmoot links for all the events are open and I just put the URL into the chat box. So if you, you can go and register for whatever events you want to attend. The only exception is the webathon because we're still working out the agenda for that. So that link will be on later, but everything else is ready to register for. Yes, we haven't made the link for the webathon because it keeps growing. We, you know, we had a plan. I know. And then like <laughs> we keep getting people coming forward with all these awesome extra events for us to do. So, uh, so yeah, we've, uh, um, uh, we, we've, we're, we're still finalizing that. So anyway, lots of stuff going on. I certainly hope that you'll consider, uh, donating. Uh, Signum University, of course, is a tax, ex- tax exempt institution. So all donations to Mythgard and Signum are 100% tax deductible. So, uh, I, I, I would, I would humbly suggest us as a, a, a worthwhile cause for, uh, for you to, use as a tax shield when that time comes. So, uh, so anyway, uh, please do, uh, please do consider donating. Um, uh, okay. Um, what are they laughing at? They're laughing. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just, I just, I like the, I like the terminology tax shield. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> All right. Well, let's transition into talking about today's uh today's episode episode 2. Um now you'll remember the questions that I asked for uh for this for it was pretty basic. There's really one primary overarching question that we had coming into this week. Um and it is what's the story here? What is going to happen in episode 2? So cuz episode 2 the the idea is Essentially to set the stage, that is, we have the Valar in Arda, and yeah, so we've had the creation of Arda, we did the Ainulindale last time, we told this, you know, we had Elrond telling the story of the Ainulindale. We have the Valar in Arda, we need to have them establishing their dwelling in Almoran, and have everything set up for, you know, starting in episode three, that's when we're going to begin to get this central story. So, you know, as we talked about the, the sort of the big arc of season one is going to be Melkor and the other Valar, and they're initially wrongly trusting him, um, his sort of uh, giving us an opportunity to really depict Melkor's downward trajectory and what drives him and what he's all about and how the relationship with the rest of the Valar deteriorates and ultimately ends in the war to begin all wars at the end of the ep- at the end of the season. Um, so you know we've talked about that before. 
but but the problem, the challenge, I should say, with see with episode two is that this is really kind of a prelude to that whole story where we're the goal of episode two is to get us by the end of the episode to the point where we can start telling that story to the point where we have the Valar in Almerin and but Melkor's not there yet. You know, Melkor hasn't really arrived and we, we haven't done that. Um, that's what happens in, in episode three. So what happens then in episode two? We, it's, uh, it, it seems like we've got no story to tell in episode two. So what is, what is our story? So, um, I have, um, I have a couple suggestions about what we might do here. Um, they're thinking about, you know, the stuff that we get in the books. There are basically, as far as what occurs, as far as actual events happening and narrative, the thing that is happening is the form, the basic formation of the earth, right? The, the Valar are shaping the world. Now, as action points for a TV series go, that's not exceptionally helpful, right? I mean, how on earth do we depict that? And I guess that's one question that I would say, because we have to have it to some extent. You know, that moment at the end of the Aino Lindale when the Valar come down into Arda and find that it was only on point to begin, right? They find that it is without shape and that they themselves must shape it. That the that the history, you know, the vision that they saw after the... Um, after the music, um, was, was only a foreshowing and not, um, and it was not yet real and that they have to make it real. Well, uh, you know, episode two is when they start making it real. But again, how do we do that? How do we depict them forming the world? Um, I, uh, I'm not, this is one of the reasons that I'm thinking again, we need to be a little frame heavy here, right? Uh, I don't think we can do a non voiceover just like, hey, let's just show the world taking shape and the Valar in some form or other, you know, forming mountain ranges and, uh, and all that kind of thing. I just, and have Martin Shaw reading the text. <laughs> Shaw reading the text, reading that one sentence over and over again. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, and and he, he, here's 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 another challenge. It's hard enough to depict on screen like mountain ranges forming and and all that kind of thing. But think about it this way: Who does what? That is, when we talk about Arda taking shape, all of the Valar are involved, right? But in fact, when I I, I one thing I was realizing. When I was trying to say, well, okay, what exactly do I picture in my head when I'm reading these passages? And I recognize, you know, when I sort of really stopped to ask myself that, um, I, I, I was realizing that the primary, um, uh, the primary picture I always have in my head is really just what Aule was up to, right? Forming mountains and, and stuff like that. But, there are other Valar involved, right? Nienna is involved right. in shaping the world. What's she doing? Irmo is involved in shaping the world. Orame is involved. What are they doing? I, you know, not all of them are going to have obviously. And like, so we can depict the work of Olmo or of of Olmo in the sea, sort of. I don't know how you form the sea. Right. I mean, like, it's just it's there, right? I mean, it's like water. Do we have him just like? You know, with a, with a big hose pumping water and he's like, no, not quite yet. Need to fill it up a little bit more. I mean, how do you form the sea? Right. 
Um, <laughs> he just has a hose in the ocean. He's just running it. <laughs> right. He's just checking back every once in a while. <laughs> he comes back and does some pH testing, you know, to be like, no, yeah, yeah, yeah we still have chemicals. To. Yeah, yeah, we've got basically a, like filling a pool. Exactly right. Yeah, he, he he'll, he'll have a big pool net, you know, to be there. I mean, yeah. What do we do? And and so okay. So but but again, Ale again, we can make Ale do stuff. Yavana, we can make Yavana do stuff, right? We can have Yavana be you know making stuff grow. That's fine. But most of the things, many of the things, many of the things that a lot of the Valar are contributing to the formation of Middle Earth, you know, the formation of Arda are not going to be really tangible and not going to, it's certainly not going to be really visually depictable. Um, so I, you know, I'm thinking that that section, we don't really necessarily do a whole lot of visuals. A lot of that could be just in the frame. You know, uh, we have, um, Elrond telling Estelle that, you know, then they formed, you know, they formed the world and each one of them, you know, sort of is, is sort of investing the world with their own. He can sort of talk about the relationship between the music and the world and about how each one of them, you know, has a different part of the mind of Iluvatar and, 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 and how each one of them is, has invested Middle Earth with, you know, with, uh, with part of their, part of their essence, part of their spirit, part of their, you know, some of their ideas. Um, mm-hmm. but, but it's tough. I is mean, is it think, hokey if you? Is it hokey if you kind of combine? If you hedge and you have Elrond talking about it, and then you do visual, occasional, not not continuous, but like glimpses or occasional visuals of depicting the things he's describing. Like, oh yeah, I made the mountains, and then you show some mountains, and right. Except, okay, here's another challenge. How do we make it look? Here's 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 the reason I'm asking that. Um, if you look at um, uh, the end of the Ainuindoi, the very last paragraph, um, that's when we get sort of the summary, um, which we're going to go back and get in more detail later on. Um, and it's about this this struggle between Melkor and the rest of the Valar. But the the main point is uh, the sentence that says, And yet their labor was not all in vain, and though nowhere and in no work was their will and purpose wholly fulfilled, and all things were in hue and shape other than the Valar had at first intended, slowly, nonetheless, the earth was fashioned and made firm. And uh, it talks later on about how, um, you know, the, the uh, again, the world has been, gets wrecked, um, by, uh, by, by Melkor. Um, and, mm-hmm. uh, it, it speaks specifically of like the symmetry of the world being, uh, being messed up. Um, that it just, it was, it was more perfect and it's, it's now more like, you know, tumultuous and asymmetrical and all these things. But again, that's a consequence of Melkor's marring. Um, that, that word marring, of course, such an important word in the Silmarillion, you know, the whole concept of Arda marred. Are we going to attempt to depict Arda unmarred? Because yeah, I was, I was actually just thinking that exact, that exact thing. Like, cause you're right. That is, that's like a central concept. And there, there, we, we, we really should try to find a way to communicate Arda marred. But do we do it by first depicting Arda unmarred? And, and, and that begs a problem. In that there's really no there's really no way um, we but certainly not the people within this story you know there, there's a sense in which are we going to depict things on screen that 
the characters telling these stories within our frame have no way of knowing, since right. they have no clue what Arda Unmarred would even look like. Right. Well, I mean, I don't think there's o- even. I don't think we even know. Right. I don't think there's sufficient description in the text for no. us to know. No, is there, there isn't. It's very vague. Um, it's more conceptual, certainly, than descriptive. Yeah. Um, and yeah. Uh, I, I mean, there's there's yeah. things about there's things about. Melkor like magnifying colds and and heats and um, filling valleys where they where the Valar dig valleys and throwing down mountains where they build mountains and stuff. But I mean that's all pretty abstract and yes. and 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 I think I think the follow up question not just there's not just a practical question of how do we depict art on Mard when we really have no clue what that looks like. But there's also a sense in which um, sh- you know like like is it better to try to directly depict it? Just in order to communicate the damage being done by Melkor, or is it better to communicate sort of the kind of the vague and abstract notion of an art unmarred, like the idea that like this is a this is a story you know or or a tradition or a myth that's been passed down among amongst the the Eldar, like this idea that the world as we live in it, which is which is you know it's actually pretty good. Um, um, but there's a lot of dangerous stuff, and it's not perfect, and it's asymmetrical, et cetera, et cetera. Um, this is not how the world was originally, and this is the result of, of you know, the conflicts between Melkor and the other Valar and stuff. But, you know, and, and they have this tradition of, like, oh, there was an Arda and Mard, but nobody really knows what it looks like. And that this is more, you know, that, that this is kind of almost like a um, sort of like 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 something they they take on faith as opposed to having, like, you know, um, detailed diagrams of what the world looked like before Melkor stomped on it. Right, right. Maybe Aron Mard looks like those old Valentine paperback covers. <laughs> With the purple emu? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And there were more purple emus and, and red islands and, and yes, <laughs> trees that look like I they have... That- those covers make me think more of Paralandra than they do of Middle Earth. Yes, anyway. they do look like more like Paralandra. Well, that's you know, and see, exactly what to make it look. Because here's here's my objection to attempting visually to depict Arda unmarred. That is making things look. I don't think we can do that and make it look attractive. Like for instance, um, we could not do. If we wanted to show, you know, as you say, showing visuals associated with, uh, you know, not not doing a contiguous visual narrative, but, you know, having like Elrond telling us tell the story about how they did this. And when we talk about Aule's work of raising the mountains, as you said, we can have visuals of mountains, except wait, we can't have visuals of real mountains because that's not what they would have looked like before they were marred. All of the mountains that we see, that we know what they look like, that's the post-Melkor mountains, right? We don't know what Aule would have been. And the word that Tolkien uses to describe, like, what was lost, like, what fell away, is symmetry. So I'm thinking, you know, although it sounds funny, I think that I, I totally agree with Nick Palazzo's point that there's this almost implication that... Like the mountains would have been like perfectly conical, right? Um, uh, the 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 trees would have been I don't know like perfectly straight and totally symmetrical in their shape. 
not like all gnarled and twisty, like real trees grow. Because real trees grow like that because of the adversity of the circumstances and the way that their environment affects them, right? The kind of extremes of heat and cold and all these other things. These that's This is what makes the mountains rough and craggy. This is what makes trees twisty and gnarled. This is what, you know, all of these things are what make anything look what we would call interesting, right? I mean, the thing the thing is, we are so immersed in that world, the idea of a perfectly neat, symmetrical, um, geometric world is appalling to us. That's not going to look attractive. It's not going to look like a fall. That's going to look like a nightmare um, from which we're being rescued by Melkor, and I don't think that's what we're going to want to go for, <laughs> you know? No. <laughs> so, it's it's hard. Um it's it's uh it's 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 very difficult. So this is what I'm thinking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Nick Poato says like those cell phone towers disguised as trees. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, also, um Corey, Joyce Joyce Sturgill asks a good question which is like how long does Arda unmarred persist? Cuz Melkor yes. gets to work pretty early in the process. Well, I mean, there are different versions. I mean, again, in the different, you know, when we're, when we hear about it in, in, uh, in the Anulindale, and we, I mean, this, it's so unclear exactly how much time is passing. Um, but, uh, so yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, we can, here's my, here's my basic thought. That, that's why, that's kind of why I, that like, I sort of feel like the sort of, <laughs> I love James Pace's, um, his new, his new, like, 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 I don't know what you call that when you mash up two words, unmarda, <laughs> <laughs> unmarda. <laughs> yeah, that's um, good. That's, that's why, good. That's why there's a sense in which, to me, unmarda is it's almost it's almost less real and concrete and almost more aspirational. Like that, it's this, it's sort of this, this, this almost. I guess, for lack of a better term, religious belief amongst the elves of this idea of that that you know that the that the world was the you know the the various kinds of suffering and that the 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 sources of their suffering in the world were not it, it's it's like original sin almost right right like, right it's a, it's it is original sin but and there's a sense in which like all of this bad stuff in the world is not native to it it's this alien force that was brought about because of this one bad guy in this case Melkor but we basically really have no concept of what the world would look like without it and and you know and and there's maybe a little even nagging doubt like is this in fact true? You know, maybe the world just is the world the way it is. Maybe there was no perfect world, or at least there was no chance we'd ever actually live in that world. So it's more aspirational than it is like historical. Right. And I think, and what I'm thinking we can do here is not attempt to depict, because I mean, the fact is, I think this is one of the things that is nearly impossible for human beings to imagine what would i mean our whole tastes are you know our tastes themselves are defined by the world we actually live in right so it's um it's very difficult so anyhow um i think we don't try to do that um because it's impossible i think we're bound to fail in one of two ways either we fail to depict a world which is fundamentally different from the world we live in in which case we're not being true to the concept, or we 
uh, fail to depict the concept at all. You know, uh, we, we, or, or that is we're true to the concept and we make the concept seem appalling and therefore fail to convey it utterly by, you know, it seems like the closer we get to succeeding in visually depicting it, the further we'll get away from actually conveying it. Therefore, yes. my my sense here, what we need to go for, and this is th- sort of throughout season one, the, the, the focus of Arda Unmarred shifting to Arda Marred needs to be not visual, but character. It needs to be in the lives of the Valar. We need to be show, it, it is like the piece of the community of the Valar established at Almerin and then later in Valinor. That's what has to be... It is like the, the harmony among the Valar. It's the the interpersonal harmony among the among the Valar is, I think, where we need to show what Arda Unmarred looks like. And I use look in quotation marks there. Um, and the war, to begin all wars, with which we end season one, that's where we show... This is Arda Mard. This is what Artemard looks like. And we can have some visuals there. I mean, I don't think that we can fundamentally, you know, depict trees and plants and animals and mountains that are fundamentally different, um, from our, the ones that we're familiar with. I think the best that we can do visually is to depict, you know, really nice, healthy, clean looking <laughs> mountains, trees and animals. Um, but, uh, uh, and, and then show things get corrupted. I mean, that's one of the images that we're, you know, the, the, the idea of like rot and decay and corruption, um, is, is one of the visual images that we do get about the influence of Melkor on Middle Earth. So, anyway, um, I, so I think that, um, a lot of, uh, a lot of the, um, um, a lot of the 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 visuals that we can do the the the, the description of Arda Unmarred, the conveying of that concept, I think that could happen almost e- either entirely or almost entirely within the frame, um, between uh, uh, and you know maybe we even have uh, this be a discussion where Estelle and Gilrein are there too. Maybe Gilrein pushes on this a little bit, you know, where where she expresses some of the kind of skepticism. That, um, that, uh, that, that, that Andreth, um, uh, specifies. In fact, Dave, maybe she can even go where you went just a little bit ago and say, you know, Master Elrond, like, with all due respect, how the heck do you know this? Like, who was there? You know, where does this lore come from? How does anybody know right. what oh, things yeah. were like? At the Actually, point? it would be kind of, it would be cool if she kind of provided the voice of, the voice of skepticism or doubt. You know, yes. like, whatever. The, the, you know, like, all I know is the world that I have to live in. Exactly. Um, and, and I don't know, I don't know if I buy this whole perfect whatever, like, well, I don't even know what that would look like. Um, and it doesn't, and even if it was true, it doesn't do me any good because I'm, because <laughs> I'm stuck living here. Right, right. You know, yeah, exactly. And, and, uh, and there could be that tension. I mean, I, I can imagine, 
uh, you know, sort of uncorking a Lord of the Rings line, you know, basically when, uh, you know, Elrond, you know, says like, the reason it's important to understand this is to know, that, yes, there is evil in the world. Yes, there is suffering in the world, but nothing is evil in the beginning. It is important to understand um, if, you know, and, and he could even say like, look, you know, your son is going to be great. He has the, he has the, the potential for greatness in him, but he needs to know that the great can fall. And in fact, the great often, the greater you are, the, the likelier you are to fall, as the stories we're going to be saying, we're going to be telling over the next 10 years will show. Um, so it's important for him to know that nothing is evil in the beginning and that those who are the greatest evil and who bring the greatest suffering ha- began, you know, looking not unlike little Estelle over there. And it's important for us to understand where everything comes from so that we can see how this stuff happens. Um, it's, you know, we can understand, we can, we can, we can understand and make some kind of sense of this kind of the, of this suffering and not just sort of throw up our hands at it. So I think this, this can be Elrond's sort of counter, you know, his attempt to explain why this is not just, you know, kind of pie in the sky theoretical. He can also mention, you know, the, the, the simple fact that they, you know, the elves do have these traditions handed down to them by the Valar themselves. Um, you know, that he's not, he doesn't have this firsthand, that he was not there. Um, and yet, you know, he did know those who were, who had been with the Valar. He's never met the Valar himself, Elrond hasn't. Um, so, you know, he's not going to pretend that. Um, you know, but he learned from those who did know them personally and, and heard these stories from them. Um, so again, there's still that sense of tradition that he's a part of. Um, and yet, you know, he certainly has, not not direct knowledge, but uh, but pretty close indirect uh, knowledge. Um, but anyway, yeah. I, so I think that, that that's a really um, you know this might be the moment. The beginning of this episode might be the moment where we really begin that tension. Um, you know, we can show Gilrine in the first episode. Maybe we show Gilrine being more sort of generally skeptical. You know, we we talked about how we possibly have a conversation between Gilrine and Elrond, where Gilrine wants to just tell him who he, you know, and they're, uh, the, the subject of his education, um, you know, now that it has arisen, brings to the surface Gilrine's desire to stop hiding who he is and to tell him his story and to tell him about his father and, um, and, uh, and all these other things. And Elrond, you know, saying, you know, no, we let, let him remain Estelle. Um, but now in this episode, we can be building off of that tension and, but again, focusing on this issue. I, I think it's a great way to deal with this question of Arda marred and Arda unmarred and how do we relate to that and why do we care and how is this not just a, a sort of a boring history lesson at best, you know, um, even if it's, even if it's not a delusion entirely, as Gilrine might perhaps suggest, you know, that this is just like, the way that elves think and the way that elves talk about things, but men know this is not, that's not what the world is ultimately like. Um, so anyway, I think that that could work really well. And so we can do visuals. We you know, if we want to do visuals, we can do visuals. I'd be interested to see visuals. Um, and in particular, again, the biggest problem that I have is if he's going to go through and talk about, um, well, here's another question. Would we want to use this as an opportunity to introduce the Valar? 
in his description. So he's talking about how Arda was formed. He could go through and do like a, you know, do like a roll call. You know, he could say, um, you know, and here's how the, here's how the Valar formed Arda. And he could explain each one and say, you know, there is Manway, who is the Lord of the Winds and the Skies. And we could have some visuals. Um, we could also use those moments to visually introduce the Valar themselves. You know, the, the, um, sort of the elemental version of the Valar. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, it's, um, um, yeah, I think yeah. that, uh, I think that's not a bad idea. I think this might be a, this might be a good time to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, Nick Palazzo says we're basically attacking the question of how can there be a loving God if there's evil in the world? Absolutely. The problem of evil is one of the things that the early parts of the Silmarillion is very interested in. I mean, the, that's it's one of the core things about the Aino Indole. How did evil get in the world? It's one of the questions that Tolkien is plainly addressing. I think it would be... Um, uh, almost irresponsible of us never even to address it, you know, never to act, not actually to talk about it explicitly is in my mind, it's one of the, one of the chief things, um, that the, the, um, early bits of the Silmarillion really are, are sort of setting out to do. So absolutely. Absolutely. Um, having Elrond describing the action of the different Valar also is an important way for us to be able to convey the non-visual stuff that so many of the Valar are doing. I mean, Mandos contributes to setting up Middle-earth. What does he do? Right? I mean, what's Mandos's job? Um, uh, <laughs> and how do you depict it visually? You know, um, it's hard. I mean, so I, I, I don't think we have to visually depict all of them. Uh, that is, we don't have to depict all of their actions. But um, we can show them in their elemental forms. And I don't mean that we have to do anything as sort of, uh, you know, as boring as simply um, uh, as simply the, you know, a list, right? And going through and showing, you know, one portrait, you know, from one portrait to another. Um, again, this is something that we can vary and mix up with conversation within the frame. You know, Estelle's questions, Gilrine's comments, um uh, there's lots of opportunity there. So one initial answer that I'm working on giving here to my bigger question from last time, what is going to be the story of episode two, um, is that the chief story of episode two is in the frame and not in the main episode. But I don't think we have to stick with that. I think there's more that we can do. Here's my suggestion for the central answer to the question within the first age story, what story is going on in episode two? What is the drama of episode two? And I think the drama of episode two is essentially the Valar coming together and deciding to work together. That we have the, the arc of, of episode two is moving from chaos to order, moving from chaos to harmony. Um, and there are a couple of things that I was thinking of um, when thinking about that. And one is the very first paragraph of the Ainu and Delay. Um, the, uh, uh, so how uh, Eru makes the Ainur that were the offspring of his thought, and he spoke to them, propounding to them themes of music, and they sang before him and he was glad. But for a long while, they sang only each alone, or but few together, while the rest hearkened. 
for each comprehended only that part of the mind of Iluvatar from which he came, and in the understanding of their brethren they grew but slowly. Yet ever as they listened, they came to deeper understanding and increased in unison and harmony. That, I'm thinking, is essentially the story of episode two. When they get to Arda, Mm -hmm. they don't know each other. And they don't know how to work together. They get the mind of Iluvatar, the part of the mind of Iluvatar that they have. And they're all of them, with the exception of Melkor, um, in theory in principle, devoted to making the music that Iluvatar wants. But they don't know how to work together. They don't know what they're doing. Um, and they don't understand each other. And this is where, this that's also, I think, what opens the door for us for episode three from with Melkor. Um, that, again, it's one thing to say, well, they've already had Melkor revealed to them that he's a bad guy. Well, but, like, what is a bad guy? I mean, they don't get him. He's different from them. But all of them are different from each other. Right, they they encounter that all over the place, um, and uh, and you know and and sort of, uh, I mean, I think that we can see we can we can find uh, Melkor can find ways to to sort of spin what happened in the music, um, in ways which I think would be pretty easy uh, for him to spin actually. But anyhow, um, I. Um, so the question that David Baxter is asking, sort of coming back to a general frame question, or not a frame, but framework question, sort of foundational question, um, do we want the Anuindale and Valaquenta to be presented with real actors in real settings? Um, yes. Starting in episode two, we're going to have real actors in real settings. Now, we talked about the Valar being depicted prior to the awakening of the children of Iluvatar. Remember, they don't know what the children of Iluvatar are going to be like. They've never seen them before. So they can't be, we can't have them, we can't just have the actual actors, you know, uh, I mean, if uh, if we're going to give people their desire and and cast the Rock as Tolkas, which I still don't really, I'm not a huge fan. I still have reservations about the Rock as Tolkas. But anyway, the point is, when we depict Tolkas in season one, we can't just have him looking like the Rock in a wig. Um, I would insist upon a wig if we did put the Rock as Tolkas. But anyway, it can't just look like the Rock in a wig. He has to be. It's like <laughs> elemental Tolkas, right? So. Um, He's got to look, you know, the, the Valar are going to need to look alien in some senses uh, in season one. But I do nevertheless think that we still have actors uh, and actresses depicting them um, uh, and have it take place within a real setting and not just be um, sort of vague. Um, but uh, anyhow, so. Um, um, OK, OK, Um so, like I said, the drama is them coming together and working together. So here's the so here's the other thing that I was thinking of. Um, first, there's that initial passage where it describes them not really understanding each other, not knowing how to work together. Remember also that passage where um, the, the 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 conversation between Olmo and um, Iluvatar at near the end of the Ainulindaway, when they're talking about the consequences of the discord of Melkor and Al- and uh, Ulmo is saying, yeah, you know, um, I didn't think of rain. You know, I didn't think about uh, snowflakes. Um, now greater beauty has been brought to my province. And, uh, and, and, and Iluvatar has to say to him, through the clouds, 
Right, and the water vapor, these things which are the result of the extreme temperatures that have been brought to the world as a consequence of the discord of Melkor, thou hast been brought closer to thy brother Menway, whom thou lovest. You know, now water and air are together in ways that they were never together before. And almost like, hey, yeah, that's really cool. I'm going to go talk to Manway and see if we can figure out music that we can make together for your delight, right? That's his... But again, the point is, he didn't think about how to work together with Manway. He doesn't know. Even though he knows who Manway is and respects him, uh, and they are close, again, how do they work together? We don't know. So, um, you know, they don't know. The other thing, the other larger concept that I was thinking that gets emphasized, especially through the Valaquinta, is the personal relationships among the Valar, especially the marriages in the Valar. And I'm not suggesting that we have like a series of smarmy romance plots in in episode two, right? You know, I'm not uh, <laughs> I, I'm not saying that we're doing you know that we have like a uh, you know like a you know the 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 Valar version of the Bachelor or something, you know, in episode two. But I am thinking that we're, we show people sort of coming together. The, the first thing that happens is is show you know again remember that passage in the in in the, that first paragraph of the Aina Lindale when it talks about them um, them being first but a few together right the first step is those of them which are really in sympathy with each other come together and discover how they work together. Manway and Varda first, right? Remember the passage where it says that when Manway and Varda are together, Manway can see, uh, you know, further than anyone else, and when Manway and Varda together, Varda can hear everything that's going on in the world, but they can't when they're not together, right? So discovering how the two of them amplify each other, how they fit together. Um, you know, Varda, who is essentially the, 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 the Valar of light and, and, uh, Manway, the, the, the Vala of the sky, um, and the airs and how they fit together and how they amplify each other. Um, and you see how that makes sense, right? Varda is the light. And so when Manway is with Varda, he can see for, well, of course he can, right? She's light. Of course he can see furthest when he is with her, right? And, when Varda is with Manway, she can hear all things. Well, of course, because he's the air, which is what conveys sound, right? So, of course, she can hear uh, more when she is with Manway. But again, it's another illustration of how their provinces fit together um, and uh, how how the, the different sort of pieces of the mind of Iluvatar that each one of them have uh, not only operate independently, but come together to work together. We have Yavanna and Aule coming together. Um, we can talk about Olmo and Manway's partnership and, 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 and brotherhood together. Um, so, um, <laughs> yeah, Karita's saying she's imagining uh, a, 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 a people pairing off scene as in Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Uh, yes, Karita, and I would insist upon their wearing clothing every bit as colorful uh, as was worn in Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Um, that's uh, exactly what I would insist, and I would hope that there would be uh, uh, dancing on boards. That, too, doesn't seem like too much to ask. Definitely uh, dancing. Yeah. yeah. Gotta, ask, gotta have the dancing. Lots of dancing. Um... But uh, it may seem that I'm not really helping as far as, like, drama is concerned. Um, A lot of it is still going to be abstract, but again, what it does do, um, what the point is 
getting us to know these people, getting us introduced to these characters. And we're probably, you know, viewers are probably not going to be immediately attached to them like they could be um, with uh, with Estelle and Elrond and Gilrine. But it does really, uh, um, uh, it does really show the, um, it, it, it can show us stuff about them and who they are without just simply having it read like, you know, be like the Valaquenta reads, right? Without having Elrond just go through a Valaquenta-ish thing, right? Where he's like, let me tell you about each one of the Valar in order. Um, instead, we yes, actually meet let's them. Please not do that. Let's not do that. Exactly. Instead, instead we get to meet them. And we see them interacting with each other and they get dialogue as they are speaking with each other and they are learning about each other. And in the end, what happens is Almarin, right? We have Almarin formed and the society of the Valar come together under Manway, who is the first among equals and the delegated authority among them, as they all recognize and come to recognize, though that's not going to be obvious at the beginning. Um, but I, I even think that we can show at the beginning them acting independently, even chaotically. So that things aren't really working together. Um, we can see some of them coming and working together, like Ivana and Aule, right? Um, you know, they, like, she's making seeds and wanting to plant them, and he's making earth in which to plant things. And so pretty early on in the game, Ivana and Aule are like, hey, look, it's chocolate and peanut butter. Let's together, let's get together and work on this, you know, soil and plant thing. This sounds like a, this sounds like a good partnership, right? So, um, we can show them working together, but everybody's not working together with them, right? They're doing their thing. Manway and Varda are doing their, like, hey, it's light and sound waves. Isn't this awesome kind of thing over here? Um, one of the th- one of the points of drama that I was thinking that we could depict, Ase. I really like Ase. And I want I, I, I would want Ase and Uinen to feature in this. Um, Ase is, like, the violence of the coasts, right? Um I, I think of Ase in particular because, as I said, I, I'm thinking about the shape from chaos to, to order. Um, but the thing is, the Valar, we don't have the Valar coming together as like a smarmy, lobotomized crew, right? Like they're all like, ah, we are all about peace and harmony and everything is lovely and nothing is marred. Um, and so we all naturally come together and we all understand each other and work together and we are all benevolent and we speak in, 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 you know, mild voices. Well, and that was actually, I was going to bring that up and this is a perfect place to do it. So I'm going to interrupt you. Yeah. Which is, do. I think, this is a great episode to do some foreshadowing because we want to make it clear the Valar, like you just said, they're not infallible. Yeah. And they have their personalities and they have their tempers and they make their mistakes and we know they will be making mistakes in the future. So this is a great episode. I'm really, you know, I think showing the personalities and this whole working apart and then coming together is a great idea because it also gives an opportunity not just Ase and Unin, but, you know, Manway, you know, it's like he's not going to be the be-all and end-all infallible person, you know, person, whatever, being. Um, But we kind of show that in this episode, you know, personality uh, traits that are going to lead to some issues down the line. Yeah, I mean, there's going to be tension. Not everybody's going to get along. By the way, including. So by the way, this episode, I guess, man, is just going to be over in the corner doing doom stuff, right? Doom, doom, doom. <laughs> over. The... <laughs> <laughs> yes. I got have a lot to do really until later <laughs> yeah and I, I think by the way that Mandos is the one who comes to who basically sort of anoints Manway 
right? You know, when they do oh, yeah, all come together, Mandos yeah. is the one who steps forward and says, Manway shall lead us, right? Manway is the one who is, who is, you know, to yeah. be the, you know, the, the vice gerent of, of Iluvatar. Um, yeah, because I mean that's his job, right? He's the doomsman, so right, he's right. he's he's that's the one true. who's, you know, we could even have him coming in and be like, you know, come on, clean it up, people. You're supposed to be working. He could be it. like he could be like the inspector, you know, with a clipboard <laughs> exactly. walking around checking right. people out while they're doing stuff. <laughs> <clears throat> right, exactly. Manos just his, his job is to just rain on everyone's parade. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I am Mandos, wet blanket. You're not doing. That right. I am pronouncing yeah. my doom. You're not doing that right. That's right. Not busting anything up like Melkor. He's just, he's just judging everything. He's just, he's just a real downer, is the thing. Yeah, he just he just you know he's just a buzzkill, basically. I can imagine. Yeah. I can imagine the tension, for instance, between Tolkas and uh, and Mandos. You know, Tolkas is always laughing. Oh, yeah. He's always having fun, and I, I'm I'm just imagining actually this sort of uh, I I. Could could imagine a kind of a running joke, you know, where like uh, you know somebody says something funny or Tokas does something, and then we just cut to Mandos's perfectly deadpan face as he's like staring straight at him, yes. uh, <laughs> with this like we are not amused expression. Um, uh, but anyway, so yeah, this this yeah, showing the personality of the they, they don't all get along. Um, they don't all get along perfectly. They don't all get each other. Um, even Yavanna and Aule. As we know from the right. Enten Dwarf story, don't fully get each other. We can that 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 marriage can be. I was about to call it a rocky marriage, which is a little ironic under uh, the circumstances. But but anyway, you know, yeah. I mean, that that they're, 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 you know, I don't I don't think we need to insert a whole lot of relationship drama with like Manway and Varda. But I think that like Olmo and uh, or uh, Aule and, and Yavanna can have a certain amount of uh, relationship. Drama. Oh yeah, feisty, you know. <clears throat> and then there's like Olmo like, versus the rest of the Valar, right? One of the one of the sort of motifs, especially of the Lost Tales uh, uh, era of Tolkien's uh, mythology, is basically Olmo the rebel, like Olmo just disregarding the rest of the Valar and doing his own thing. Um. And, uh, you know, the, the one who is often not in consensus with everybody else and, and the kind of tension there. I mean, I think, you know, in many ways, how cool would it be to have it look for like the first half or the first third of the season look like it's Olmo who's ready to like become the bad guy over time? Like he's the central point of tension. Ah. Um, so that like, because so, cause he could have gone that way, right? I mean, Olmo sticks to himself. He's kind of Melkor-like. In many ways, yeah. he's he got a lot in common with Melkor, um, and the only difference is that ultimately he he maintains his allegiance, um, though even though he seems to kind of define that in his own ways. And, you know, when the rest of the Valar are like, "We shall withdraw ourselves from Middle Earth," almost like, mm, "Yeah, whatever. I'm not going to do that. I'm still going to keep myself in Middle Earth as much as I want." Um, so we see him marching out of step with them. So you know, again, I, I think that we can show this stuff. It doesn't have to be all saccharine and and. Uh, you know, sort of hushed tones. Um, oh, Rome is kind of another loner too, but it's yeah. not just simply because of the nature of his, like he's the hunter. So, but he also doesn't take himself out of Middle Earth either. So, there, right? No, so there, exactly. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. We could show, now, of course, in uh, uh, in the chapter one story, um, Tolkas um, uh, Tolkas uh, comes later than everybody else. In fact, Tolkas oh, right. doesn't That's come right. until the right. war starts. 
I have to admit, I don't like the idea of not having Tolkas until near the end of season Especially one. Especially his counterpoint to Mandos. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I kind of, earlier. I really want, uh, I really want more Tolkas. In general, really. Uh, but, um, but, but I really want more Tolkas through season one. Um, so I'm kind of thinking, of, we can have him show up later. Like he doesn't have to be in episode, in this episode, for instance. He could still come after Melkor, for instance, maybe. Um, but, uh, but I, I kind of, I, I, I think I would, I would rather, uh, I would rather deviate from the story in that way. I agree. Um, but, uh, yeah. Karita says, we, we see Tolkas getting kind of uncomfortable when he's around Nienna. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, think about like the difference between Mandos and Nienna, right? And the way in which, cause I would think that Nienna, although she's like the weeping one, I think she wouldn't be like the wet blanket, right? She, she's not about like Mandos. I mean, he's the doomsman, right? Like making people feel bad is part of what he does. <laughs> like it's, it's not his job to deliver good. Whereas Nienna is about compassion. Um, so, you know, Nienna's not, not the wet blanket. You know, she's not like the one who rains on everybody's, she's literally crying, but she doesn't rain on everybody's parade, right? Um. <laughs> Nobody wants her around either, but just for different reasons. For different reasons. Right, yeah, exactly. Um, in fact. People are I- inviting both of them to parties, it's very reluctantly. Mandos, because he's so judgy and he's raining on everyone's parade. <laughs> Nienna, because he just can't have a conversation with her without her bursting into tears. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But see, that's the thing. That's the challenge. We can't depict Nienna as needy, right? You know, we can't be like, oh, so, somebody go talk to Nienna again. We got to, somebody got to talk Nienna <laughs> off the ledge again. Okay. Right. She can, she just, that, that girl just can't hold it together. Right. That, 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 that can't be Nienna. She is like, she is the, she's the center of wisdom. I have an idea about Nienna. That's not really, and that isn't really her either. That's not her. Right. Her no, role. it's not her. When is, when is compassion actually needed? Now I cannot remember in the book. Uh, does she really figure very strongly in the very early parts of, this because it seems to me like the compassion piece really comes in when start, stuff starts to go sideways. Actually, actually, she probably just follows along in Mandos's wake. Mandos is watching. Well, that made me and then everybody else feel better. And then Nienna's comes like, people, oh, oh so don't worry, it's not so bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. I feel your pain. Uh. Yeah, yeah. Don't worry, he's like that to everybody. It's not just you. Um, That's right. That's yeah, right. yeah, exactly. Um, no, he, 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 here's my idea about Nienna. I say we have Nienna never there in group scenes. Like, she, ah. Nienna doesn't show up to parties. Um, she doesn't show up to parties. Maybe she's not even there. Like, if we do, like, throne room th- scenes or whatever, you know, gathering scenes, I think she doesn't come. Nienna always comes in, like, one-on-one. She will sometimes in- interact with people. She will sometimes make her judgment known. But she comes in, again, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't she doesn't perform in public you know she's the one who kind of comes in and gives advice on the side and sort of uh, or you know remember one of the things about me one of the diff- most difficult things about Nienna one of the roles that she is given one of the things she does she is one of the primary advocates for unchaining Melkor in Valinor when he repents and says i'm totally sorry i'm absolutely uh, better now. I'm not going to cause any more problems anymore. You should totally release me into general po- population here in Valinor. Um, Nienna argues for him and urges them to release him and to have pity on him and let him go. Which, of course, is 
seems, I mean, this is one of the, big oopsie, big oopsie. Yeah. I mean, it seems it's one of the hardest things to get because Nienna is supposed to be wise and yet that's really foolish and turns out to be really foolish. It seems right. So, so how do we get that? And how do we do that? Well, again, I think that this is one of the reasons why Nienna, um, why Nienna gets, uh, uh, sort of, I mean, we, we see her, um, showing compassion to Melkor too. I mean, I think that she's a voice of, I think we make her a voice of support for Melkor even early on. Um, not again, not supporting his evil, not supporting, but, but, but urging them to, when, when people come in, cause people are going to, one of the things people are going to say when Melkor comes in, in, in episode three is going to be like, Hey dude, this is the troublemaker guy who like screwed up the music. Right. Um, and, uh, and you know, then he gives his version of the story and I think Nienna supports him. Um, but again, I think that she can yeah. support him quietly with people. She's, you know, later on, like Manway and Varda are talking about I'm now doing episode three and no longer doing episode two. But then, but anyway, you know, Nienna maybe comes in and talks to the two of them and urges them to, to anyway. I mean, so I'm thinking that that's the kind of role that, that, that Nienna can play. Um, but, uh, but anyway, yeah, like basically, the culmination of episode two is the establishment of Almarin and, you know, Mandos's declaration that Manway should lead them and them all coming together and everybody's like, hooray, yes, all right, everything's great. So now we have everything going and now it's like proceed with the history of Arda, haha. But, um, but it takes them a while to get there and we show, we show tension. You know, we even have incidents early in the episode where there's actual fights between them, even, in a sense, almost physical fights. That is, they're each one trying to set up their own domain. They're trying to do their own thing and they don't always work together. You know, that is, their domains don't always work together. Um, and that's, uh, that's, that's fine. I think that's good. And we show them as sort of establishing peace and getting together. So that's, that's my idea. That's my, that's my concept for, uh, um, for the sort of the primary action. Um, by the way, um, a, a a cameo that I definitely want to happen in episode two, Sauron. I want to show Sauron's relationship with Aule. Um, I like that. I want to establish the fact yep. that Sauron is one of Aule's people. Um, so we have to have Sauron. Um, another person I would like to have, um, I don't know if we introduce her in episode two or if we wait until later on, but another character I totally want to feature not, okay, not feature, because she's not going to be a central part of the plot, but I want her to be there and introduced clearly. Ungoliant. Not in Spider-Form. Oh, yeah, yeah. I want Ungoliant in, in, in woman form. Well, you know, elemental season one Valar female form, basically. Um, she's the Vala of darkness. She's Gloomweaver. Um, that's, the, the, that's the fascinating thing about her from the beginning. We were talking about, um, you know, Melkor and his relationship with darkness before and how Melkor is going to be like them. He's not, it's not that he loves darkness. It's that he, he loves light and he is the miser of light and trying to keep light all to himself. And this is how he ends up using darkness in, 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 in many of his works as a chapter one says, or no, the Valaquenta says, um, well, yeah, he's using, he's using, um, he's using darkness in all of his works because he does not, he's denying light to everybody else, but he doesn't, he's not about darkness. Darkness isn't his thing. Um, light is his thing. Fire, fire, you know, light and warmth are his thing. Like fire is his thing. Darkness hey, is ungoing thing. 
Isn't was Angolian actually a Vala or was she a Maya? Well, she's a Maya, but she's 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 a big one. I mean, she's you know it and she's that the big, the big Maya of darkness. I like it. Well, I mean, you said Vala darkness. I don't see any reason why she, she couldn't be a Vala. I mean, I, I think, think that that, that boundary she, is uh, not real. Very is and not the real. Vala very Maya. Clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. That seems to be one of one of um of of roles, right? Yes, I think people get more, really more hung so up on that. Substance. And, uh, yeah. um, when I think it's a lot less clearer, a, a lot less clear than a lot of yeah. people want to make it. Um, Maiar seem to be sort of followers. Like you were saying, Sauron is a follower of yes. Aule or, or a, so in that case, you're right. Cause Angolian would be her own independent being. She's which, a free agent from, from the beginning. I mean, totally, but they are, yeah. but they are, but they are essentially the same. They are in essence, the same right. kinds of beings. They're still Einor, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and even like, remember the word Valar, um, you know, that's introduced just by like you know that the greatest of those who came down became known as the Valar. That is, it's just right. a name they're given. Right. It's not, they're not like different right. species. Um, it's just yeah, how they're known. I so. think this is an interesting thing to talk about now, though, because I could see you know people who have made that assumption that there's a distinction between the two races that up so yeah i'm glad we're having this talk now <laughs> yeah and, um, and that that could so, even perhaps be a question that estelle asks if we think it's worth it you know ha, you know to have him be like sure. well you know is there what's the difference between the valar and the Maiar? and and elrond can say well there isn't an essential difference it's just some were the leaders and some were the followers and some were greater and some were lesser but that's even true among the valar for crying out loud that they're the greatest is, among yeah. them I mean, and, Tim yeah. asked, if, is it one of ranking up power? And I don't know that that's the case. Um, it is kind of an ambiguous distinction, isn't it? It's not clear, really. Yeah. That, like, I, I don't know that Sauron, well, I don't know. I was going to say lesser power. And stuff like, I mean, Ungoliant, if, if you say, okay, Ungoliant was a Maya, well, she'd be a definite demonstration that the Maya are, are no less powerful in certain cases than the Valar are. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, she... Exactly. So, no, I mean, I think that that's... Yeah. I, I, we definitely don't want to have a sort of a rigid caste system um, between the Valar. You know, we just yeah. show they're all people. I mean, in essence, I feel yeah. like the, the primary distinction we make between Valar and Maya in season one is that the Valar are the main characters and the Maya are, are the minor character. You know, they're the supporting actors yeah. in the story. Just very few of them will we get to know as well. They're not going to be the prime movers of the action. The you know the the they're not going to get as much screen time as the Valar are going to get. Um, you know, so yeah. we'll get to know Aule better than we'll get to know Sauron because he's the chief guy. But we but you know some of these Maiar we need to make sure that their names appear again. I want Asa and Uin in in there. I want Aule in there. I really want Ungoliant. Maybe we don't put her in here first, but, uh, but I really want to meet Ungoliant. Um, I even sort of, I I even sort of had this vision of the moment. So she goes off on her own to sort of quietly off on her own. She's not part of the war. But then later on, when we get to the darkening at the end of season two, and Melkor's like, oh yeah, Ungoliant, right? I remember her from like episode four of uh, season one, right? And so he, (laughs) he goes back and he finds her. And says, you know, I, I want to form an alliance with you. I want to, I want you to come and help me. And, and he's speaking with her in her, like, woman form, right? In her female form, as we saw her in season one. And then Ooh, she, she got a morph on screen. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Then she's like, okay, let's go. <laughs> Boom. And she takes the form of this yeah, huge wait, spider. Then, 
Let me put on a better. Yeah, let me put. Let me let me uh, get into something more comfortable. <laughs> exactly right. That's right. And basically, I'm kind of thinking that like Melkor gets kind of like creeped out by her. Yeah, you know, I could see be like, ooh, like whoa, okay, okay. right, excellent. That's that could be useful, so, I guess. But so, so question question regarding Angolian that was um, brought up by Brianna, which I think is an interesting point, which is. There is a there is a little in the in the published Silmarillion. There's kind of mystery surrounding Ungolian, right? Like I, I think I think much like Bombadil, it seems fair the way the world's structured. It's it seems almost clearly implied that she must be Ainur of some kind. But at this, on the other hand, um, there there is sort of a you know in the text it's kind of there's some mystery around her like it's not really clear where she came from you know she doesn't pop up until a little bit later in the story she seems different in some sense from a lot of the other um Einar. and Brianna's just asking that if we introduce her earlier at, and and firmly establish her as a member of uh, you know as a maya um as a member of you know the cast Will that detract from that a little bit, or you know maybe it does, and maybe we're willing to pay that price because because as Corey said, it's kind of cool to have her on screen. But what do you think about that? I think we can do that by how she's introduced and how she's related to other people. I don't think Ungoliant is ever mainstream. Like I, you know, Melkor is going to try to insinuate himself and be, you know, so like you know, in episode two we have Mandos and the rest of the Valar establishing their like you know Justice League alliance here in Almerin. Um, Melkor is going to try to join that right and ultimately subvert it and bring it around to serving him. Um, I, I don't think Ungoliant ever joins. I think she's off on her own. And so I'm, th- you know, maybe we don't introduce her in episode two. Maybe we wait until like episode four or five. And then like part of the thing can be like, dude, who's that? You know, or maybe Orame comes back and he's like, okay, so I was out riding the other day and I saw, I saw this like crazy darkness lady. I have no idea who she is or what's going on with her. And then, you know, Long-tongue so woman in a black dress. <laughs> that could be, that could be her, 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 uh, the story with the Right. What is the story with the creepy darkness lady who's all by herself over there? And, uh, she looks like Martin Adams. Maybe we, maybe, maybe we established all this very quickly on screen with the, with the welcome to Arda orientation meeting. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Oh gosh. Okay. Angelica Houston is going to have to play Angolian. I see it now. And you just have her sort of, you have her off in the corner sitting by herself, sort of, you know, in like a dark, shady corner, and people are just like with oh, all kinds God, of like shadow around her and yeah. stuff. Ooh, she's or maybe we depict it as yeah, like she'd be like a high school lunch girls. scene <laughs> <laughs> or junior high school dance. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's how we do the pairing up of the Valar. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we have we have we have like a Yavanna and Aule slow dancing awkwardly in the middle of the. Yeah, that's good. There you go. And they're and so, Manway so, are our elected prom queen and king. Right? Yeah, exactly. It's perfect in all. So one ways. thing I like, one thing I like, one thing I like about what we're doing here um, <clears throat> is sort of the different ways in which we're introducing um, Ungoliant, let's say, versus Melkor and Sauron. Like, I I kind of like the idea of not pre of of just of making this of of making this adaptation without presupposing that people already know who all these people are or yeah. just setting that aside. You know, like 
we're 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 in some sense we're making this we're going in the direction of what's more dramatic. It's more dramatic to assume that people don't know yep. uh, who Melkor is, and we're not going to just immediately establish him as a mustache twirling villain from the moment he walks on screen. I like the idea of um, of of clearly establishing somebody like Owen Goliant as more villainous because it might take away a little, it might distract from Melkor and make him seem less evil early on. I like the idea of Ulmo being portrayed as, you know, like, it looks like somebody's going to go bad early on, and Ulmo seems like the best candidate because he's the guy who on screen is running around doing his own thing. You know, Nienna's also kind of, she's, somebody pointed this out, um, let's see, who did this? Uh, Karita point out that, that Nienna is a nice contrast with Ungolian. She's yeah, kind of also yeah. off on her own and kind of a weird creepy lady too, but um, but definitely yeah. different. In a but nice. Different She's way so from nice. Right. Now I got I'm sorry. You know, I'm just getting punchy here. David Baxter is hilarious. So he said, it's like the conference call White Council. Mandos is trying to get everyone on track. Nienna is frustrated by trying to make sure all the electronics are hooked up properly. <laughs> Yavana is trying to get everyone to try her cooking, and Tolkis is talking about the game last night to no one in particular. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm really thinking, like, we can have some, like, serious and entertaining dysfunction going on uh, in the, you know, so when I say, like, the shift from chaos to order, I don't mean everything is clean and neat. Like, there can be lots of, you know, of, of yeah, I mean, things not working properly and, uh, and, con- and conflict. In, but basically, the, the thing is, everyone is kind of on this, all of the major characters, all the, you know, the, the central Valar are on the same page. And there's clearly, you know, the, 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 the couples are together, you know, the major couples are together, the team is assembled by the end of the, by the end of the first episode. Yeah, and so the first episode, that climax of the first episode would be sort of Mandos declaring that, you know, Manway shall lead them. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, all of that stuff, all of the, the sort of the spiky bits of their personalities and the ways they don't fit. And Dave, as you say, the reader's uncertainty about what exactly is going on and where is this headed. I mean, I think we should have, at the end of episode one, we should not only, or the episode, at the end of episode two here, we should not only have introduced the characters, but basically opened up the possibility of a ton of subplots, which could potentially lead, I mean, I, I think it would be cool if at the end of episode two, the viewer could imagine any number of them going wrong. Like one of these is likely to turn out to be the villain or to cause problems. And it could be any one of like five of them, basically. Um, we don't really know what, what tension is going to be sort of, uh, uh, developing. Nicholas asked, will this be more like the book of lost tales in this way? Yes. I think we have to have that. One of the chief differences between the book of lost tales version and the published Silmarillion version of Tolkien's mythology, the Valar have, way more personality in the Book of Lost Tales version. Um, the way I talked about it in my Mythgard Academy mm-hmm. class on the Book of Lost Tales is it's about like the register of the story. The story, the, the, like, where's the point of view? The point of view in the, in the published Silmarillion is basically from the elves. So we're always, we as the readers look at reading it from that point of view, we're always looking up at the Valar and the Valar are kind of distant and they're, wise and they're benevolent um and they don't have much personality we don't get to know them we don't hang out with them exactly you know it's just that they we get to know the elves and we see the elves but um but the uh, but the the valar are merely our superiors however um 
with um, with the Book of Lost Tales, the the register of the narrative is much more on the level of the Valar. We're, we're, we're looking at the, the Valar are our protagonists, like they are the um, they are the characters that we're kind of relating to um, in those early stories, and therefore they can be kind of goofy. They can they screw things up. They do not just wrong things in the... I mean, like, the in the published Silmarillion, the Valar still screw up. I mean, they invite the elves to Valinor, and that seems like that was really not a good idea. But they can screw up without looking like screw-ups. They look like screw-ups at times in the Book of Lost Tales, right? Where they, like, do... Uh, like that time when uh, Melkor sends them a messenger... And they get all upset and like execute the messenger. And some of the Valar are like, "Oh my gosh, I can't believe you just took the Melkor's messenger and threw him off a cliff. We're not supposed to act like that, people." You know, like that's the kind of dysfunction that we see happening in the Book of Lost Tales. That's completely gone in the published Silmarillion. So I'm not saying we have to tear them down, but in this way, I think in order to sort of show personality and have this be a drama that people can connect with and characters that people can get to know. I think in that way, we have to be closer to the Book of Lost Tales, and I think that'll work so much better. And, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. I, 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 look, I, at, look at, look at what, look at, the, are, are you, are you appreciating the irony, Corey? Aren't we the people, we're, we're the folks who've, complained and criticized the Lord of the Rings trilogy for taking the epic characters and then uh, turning, making them yes. down to our levels so we could relate to them. And here, now we're doing exactly that. We're like, oh, the okay, how it's we'll be serving crow later today. No, 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 no. It's no? totally different. But I, I, I do appreciate <laughs> the irony. I do appreciate the irony, but it's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. <laughs> Um, it's one yes, thing to Karina's give it. Karina's reminding us complain bitterly in at length. She might point out, okay, Karina, yeah. thanks. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. No, no, no. Totally different, different entirely. Um, I, I, I can, I can totally defend how what we're talking about here is totally different from uh, what Jackson was doing. Um, but um, Yep, no, it's totally, I'm just gonna leave it at that. It's totally different, and I absolutely <laughs> deny the charge. But, uh. <laughs> no explanation. <laughs> Differences. Well, are this, this topic is gonna come up again, I'm sure. I'm I sure mean, this it is, is gonna come up will, again. Yes, it, I'm it sure will it's come, gonna up come up again. But anyway, uh, look at the time. Uh, we're just about out of time today. We may have to return well, we to this point time, next time. Yeah, we are actually, so we should, uh, uh, move towards wrapping we, it up. We didn't really, we didn't really resolve much, did we? I mean, we, but we did come up with some great ideas, which I'm looking forward to Megan's notes to, you know, will be organized. Yes. Yeah. And see what we actually said. Um, yeah, I'm thinking. Well, I, but I do think we got basically the flavor of this episode, which is basically they start out not knowing each other, not knowing, you know, exactly how to work together. They end up, and Almoran is, start off with them arriving in Arda and with Almoran being, having been established. Yeah. And between those two points, we basically get to see a lot and get to know the characters more or less. Yes. Yes. Do, do we? Do we? Do is is? So have we done enough to be able to move on to the next episode on our next podcast, or or did we did we screw up 
like the Valar of uh, of the Book of Lost Tales and didn't actually do our job. Okay, he- here's what I want to do at the beginning of next time. In our segment where we go back and we look back at the other things, I want to go through at the beginning of next time. Um, and please somebody make a note to remind me that I said this because I'm so likely to forget. Um, at the beginning of next of our next session... Philip Menzies, put it at the top of the discussion. <laughs> some- <laughs> I wa- yeah. I want to go... Are you listening, Philip? Okay, this is for you. I, 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 <laughs> I want to go through... And because we did throw out a whole bunch of ideas, but I think what we can we do did. at the beginning of next time is just sort of sort out a bunch of these. Like Ungoliant, for instance. I really want Ungoliant to be in there. I don't think she should be in episode two. So I think we just sort of need to clarify. These are ideas that we want to save for future episodes. Um, these are the things that are going to be really essential for us to do. Characters really essential for us to introduce in episode two. So I think we can clarify some of those things at the beginning of next time, and then we will be ready to move forward. And I do think we at least need to tip our hat to the fact that this is going to be an hour-long show. So, yes, I mean, I know exactly. this is a fantasy yeah. thing, but I, let's try to keep, you know, that as well. So Yeah, and I totally I totally right, agree so. with, uh, with you know, several people are pointing out, like uh, uh, Joyce Sturgill was saying, you know, we, we totally have to introduce Melian as well, um, uh, somebody who was it That Chuck? could be a little bit later, maybe. Yeah, Chuck Snow was saying we need to introduce Gothmog, uh, the future Lord of Balrogs. Yeah. Totally agree, but um, but not not later in season one. Not today. Yeah, yeah. We, those we can save. Certainly, I mean, the whole season one is going to be about the yeah. I mean, this whole season one are going to be about the Valar and the and the Mire. So yes. we're going to want to be introducing new characters. But yeah, we don't have right. to cram it all. In. Yeah, we don't have to cram it all into one episode. But because yeah, this one really we really need to save for the for the for the main character. So so we'll, we'll we'll review that and we'll move forward. Can I can I sort of end by pointing out one sort of awesome thing which has happened and here Dave this is my Mm -hmm. justification for how we have actually done our job today did you notice okay did you notice that we actually have accomplished in this episode the super cool thing we were hoping to do in having the the frame paralleling and echoing the main like showing the interrelationship between these stories notice how we talked in the beginning about how wouldn't it be cool how if in the frame of this episode we have we're, we sort of spotlight the tension between Gilrine and and Elrond and how like he's an elf and she's human and the two of them just don't get each other and then we tell the story of the Valar and how each of them has a different picture of the mind of Iluvatar oh, yeah. and they don't really get along and they don't really understand each other and the the whole purpose uh, you know the culmination of episode two is how despite their differences and although they don't always get along and although they don't understand each other they nevertheless decide to you know they, they, they decide to come together and to form this league and uh, you know to join together uh, and work as a team despite their differences and how this then directly relates back to the frame with Gilrine and Elrond, even though maybe, you know, we don't necessarily totally resolve that, but the application becomes really good. I didn't plan that at all, but look what happened. That works, right? That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, it is really cool. And that's that is really totally cool. what we meant to do. Absolutely. <laughs> And so, though we didn't plan that, that's how I know we're done. <laughs> because it happened. Yeah. <laughs> you catastrophe. You catastrophe. You catastrophe. The eagles have arrived. Uh, uh, and so, I think that's the end. So, next time. For next time, um, our, um, the, again, so, Episode three, the, 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 the important thing of episode three, so, uh, so the, uh, next episode, our next session, sorry, is going to be in two weeks, um, which is, what's the date of two weeks from now? 
I don't even know. That's the 9th of uh, October? October, I yeah, think October so. 9th. October 9th, okay. okay. October 9th. On Friday, October 9th, will be our next session. And we're going to be discussing Episode 3. And remember, Episode 3 is the one where we're going to bring in Melkor as a character. Now, we've established the others and showed them as a team. And yet, the, you know, and, and being different, not always working together, but they're the team. Now we're going to bring Melkor in. We're going to introduce Melkor to Almarin. And... um this is going to be the episode where we've talked before about flashbacks to the Void, like, for instance, Melkor uh, trying to establish an alliance with Varda and her showing him the hand, right? That's gonna That, that story is going to be told in episode three, so we're going to be doing some flashbacks. Therefore, I have a couple questions which are sort of more mechanical, that is, thinking about how exactly we do this depiction and how we structure the episode. Question number one there is... Um, how do we, um, how do we show these? I mean, cause it could get really silly where we do a flashback within a flashback, right? First we have Elrond being, let me tell you the story of the Valar, and then we shift the scene to the Valar in Almorin. And then we have, within that story, we have, uh, you know, Varda coming to Manway and being like, I never told you the story about me and Melkor, did I? And then we shift the ground again to a flashback to that. So it could get really awkward. So how do we do that? You know, do we structure this episode differently? What do you think about that? Second question is, how do we visually depict the void for crying out loud? Um, if we show Varda and Melkor hanging out and talking to each other, in what are they hanging out? Like, what is the visual context for any discussions pre-Arda? How do we show, how do we visually depict the difference between what happens in Arda and what happened pre-Arda? My third question, so those are sort of slightly more technical questions. My third question is sort of more broad, thinking about how do we depict the initial relationship between Melkor and the Valar. We've touched on that a couple times today a little bit, but I want to keep thinking about that and developing that. Remember, the music has happened. They, they've they been through the Discord. They get that. And yet, we're going to get Melkor... You know, we talked about before when we were planning how we really want to have... Melkor with them, that we want to have them, you know, the, the, the emergence of discord again in Middle Earth, um, you know, the, the reassertion of discord and the war to begin all wars is where we're going, but we've got to get there. Um, and so how do we do that though? I mean, do we, how clueless do we make the Valar is one way of asking this question. Um, and if they're not clueless, then what are they and how do we explain it? So thinking about how we characterize Melkor's relationship with the rest of the Valar um, is going to be, I think, an important question as we approach next time. So those are my questions. Those are things for you guys to be thinking about for next time. Um, I, uh, I encourage, again, I would love to see uh, uh, listeners collaborating on an actual outline uh, of the episodes so we can actually see what the episodes that we have been describing, how they would be, how they could be actually mocked up. Um, you know, not necessarily full storyboarding yet at this point, but actually, and, and nor a full script um, with with all of the dialogue and everything written, but just a more detailed outline of, you know, scene one, scene two, scene three, to actually show how all this stuff would fit together. Um, that would be awesome. That'd that be would awesome. Be awesome. Yeah. I would love to see that. Um, but, uh, okay, any final thoughts from either I'm of you? I'm excited. This is going to be a freaking awesome episode. Yes. Yes. It is. Yeah, it's going to be really fun to talk about uh, to talk about uh, next time stuff. So, all right, very good. 
Uh, so then I will say thanks, everybody. Thanks for joining us as always. And I will say thanks for listening and Godspeed.